What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Chelsea is a mother, teacher, victim of gun violence, and advocate from Calabasas, California. In fact, she and I lived in the same neighborhood for the majority of our elementary and middle school years. Although our paths diverged in and especially after high school, social media helped us stay in general touch. However, it wasn't until she posted about her escape from a mass shooting on the anniversary of her survival that I began to learn more about her recent journey. The shooting at the Route 91 Music Festival has been featured on many major media platforms and through many mediums, but Chelsea has never shared her journey publicly. Thus, I am eternally grateful she was willing to share her experiences with us and all that's come next for her within her healing. I'm Chelsea. I am a mother of three beautiful boys. I've been married to my amazing husband, Trenton. We just celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary, which is amazing. I am a special ed teacher and I specialize in working with students with significant mental and emotional disabilities and behaviors that often exclude them from general ed or even special ed classrooms. This past year, I was honored to be able to work at a therapeutic day school with some of the students that school districts can't support, and that was a really great experience. But I've spent most of my career in the public schools working in classrooms with kiddos that just need a little extra patience and love. I think if you spoke to people who know me, they probably would describe me as someone who is very patient, compassionate, and loving. I feel like my cup is mostly filled by serving others. I feel like that's probably why I'm so drawn to the career that I am in. I am a pretty big introvert. I don't necessarily like big groups, which makes this whole story a little bit interesting for me. It's very out of character and out of the ordinary to be in a place with so many people. Being an introvert, I don't have many friends. I really have struggled to find friendships that really allow me to be exactly who I am, but I was lucky enough to have met two really special and amazing people who were with me at the shooting, and they're my best friends. Here in Alabama, I've met somebody who also has just accepted me for the introvert and very private person that I am. I think that all is very important to this whole story as well. I think that I've always been introverted. I will like put on this mask of being social and outward, 
but inside it's very painful, which is very sad to say. One of the biggest things for me is that people around me feel safe, included, and comfortable. So I think that I will put myself out there and put on this persona of being somebody who can be a little bit more outward just to help others around me feel comfortable. Around that time, I feel like I was probably in the best year of my life. I had found two really, really great friends. I had never had friendships like that before. I met them at work. So they were teachers. They got that part of my life. They weren't yet parents, but they were so accepting that I was a parent and they loved my family. I lived next door to one of them. Our husbands all got along really well. And so we were hanging out a lot. We were just having such a good time. I was really invested in my health and wellness. I had been really committed to taking care of my physical body because I was really working on also my mental health. I struggle with pretty significant anxiety and depression. I was wanting to find a way to harness that without having to be on any medications because I was having children. I wanted to be off of that. And so I was really committed to that. I was working out every day, eating really healthy. I was feeling so good physically and also so strong mentally and emotionally, not just because I was taking care of, but also because I had really great friendships with these girls. My relationship with my husband was doing really well. Everything was really, really good. And we were really looking forward to this concert. This was like our girls weekend and we planned for it all year long. We're so excited. I just remember us planning our outfits, where we're going to stay and what we're going to do. We just loved that energy that leads up to something that's so exciting and so fun, especially as a mom. This was like a really big deal to leave my family for the weekend, go with my girlfriends and have that time away, let loose and relax, listen to our favorite music and be together. Even though we're going into a situation that was so big with so many people, being with my best friends helped bring a sense of calm. I just feel like looking back on that year, it was just a really, really great few months leading up to it. I wish I could go back to that. I feel like it's so cliche to say it was like any other day, but it really was. We woke up and it was any other beautiful day. We were ready. It was the last day of the festival. We were excited to see some of the other bigger names. We started with a workout. We went and got acai bowls. We hung out by the pool. It was a really great, relaxing, fun day for us. We got dressed and ready. We hopped in a Uber and they took us to the venue. We walked in and there was these people that were handing out these refillable plastic sacks. They talk about staying hydrated during the festival and there are these water fill stations. So go to these water fill stations and fill up these sacks. We didn't think anything of it really. We like stuffed them in our purses and went on our way. We were listening to some really great music, dancing around and having a good time. My friend Danny wasn't feeling well. We decided we wanted to go fill up those water sacks at the water fill station, which was on the other side of where we were standing. We were on the side closest to the Mandalay Bay Hotel, which is where we later found out the shooter was. And so we left where we were standing and it took us to the other side and a little bit more out of the crowd that was closest to the stage. 
So we filled up those water sacks and we decided just to stand at the back of the big crowd because Danny still wasn't feeling well. I just remember hearing what sounded like firecrackers and this really strange smell. I look at my friends and I'm like, did you hear that? We're scanning around looking. Then we heard more of that and the crowd started to turn. We heard some screaming and they started running towards us. We were like, something is wrong. And so we just grabbed each other's hands and we started running towards this VIP entrance, which is blocked off by guardrails and a fence. The security guards were trying to stop us, but the crowd was just too panicked and immense. Everybody was just pushing their way. So we just hopped through all of that and ran out into the street. So now we're between the venue and the airport. We didn't really know where we were going or what we were doing, but we ducked down behind one of those cinder block rails. I just remember saying to them, what's going on? Where are we going to go? We needed to take a breath because we were panicked, didn't know what was happening. And anything that I have been taught from my father-in-law, who's big in self-defense and crisis, and what I know being a special ed teacher who's been trained highly in crisis management, I had to take a breath, compose myself, and assess the situation. As teachers, we are trained every year in active shooter trainings of how to protect our students from shooters. But at that point, the crisis that I was really trained in is in a situation where an individual is escalated either emotionally in crisis or those who are acting out violently. I think in that moment, it was more about checking myself and knowing what I needed in that moment to think clearly enough to develop a plan and then follow through on it. In my field, I'm physically attacked all the time, and I'm always having to make sure that I am composed enough to be the support that people need from me so that I keep myself calm and in control. And I think in that moment, on that night, I was able to stop and listen to what my friends were saying. What do they need also to feel safe? There wasn't a lot of second guessing, which I feel like in panicked moments, sometimes you don't know what to do. But we were very decisive and very clear. During all of this, we're hearing gunfire that now we have determined is gunfire. We are seeing people bleeding and shot. Thousands and thousands of people panicked. It sounds like it's ricocheting off all of the buildings around us. So we don't know what direction it's coming from. We assume in that moment that it's coming from inside the venue, but we're not quite sure. All we know is we need to get away. So the choice was to run towards the hotels or to run away from the crowd and away from the strip and the hotel and go down this street. Who knows where it's going to take us, but it's away from the masses. So we ran down this street. Every time the shooting would start again, we would hide behind cars, trees. I got on my phone and I called my husband. I said, there's a shooter, somebody's shooting, please find out information. So he can hear the shooting on the phone while he's talking to me. So he and his dad, they're trying to find out information. I'm on the phone with him and we're continuing to run as far away as we can. And this couple opened the door to their car and was like, get in, get in. 
another couple who had been injured got into this car and was like, we need to pray. So she says this prayer. We all are like silent, holding hands, praying. I don't know if they were at the venue or if they just happened to be in the area, but they tried to get us as far away as possible. But there was other people also driving their cars out trying to get away. And so it was deadlock traffic off this one way street. I was like, I can't sit here like a sitting duck. I looked over to our left and I saw this building. It was like a scene from a movie or something. Those gliding doors opened and I was like, we're going in there. So I grabbed them and I was like, get out of the car, we're going. Other people followed behind us and we all run in and it happened to be a helicopter tour place that does tours for like the Grand Canyon and the Strip at night. We're running in there with people who are bleeding, who had been shot and injured from being trampled. And we're trying to tell them what's going on. And so they lock their doors. Now there's probably 40 to 50 of us in there and we're all hiding. And of course, there's like people in there, not from the festival, going to take these romantic tours. You could just see on their faces like, what the heck is going on? There was a dad and his son who was probably fifth grade. They're in there and... They ended up hiding us all in this warehouse that you could only get into it with a fingerprint scan. They wanted us all to know that we were safe. Nobody's getting in or out of here without the security. So while they had no idea what was going on, they realized this group of people are in danger and hurt, and so we need to help them. That was really kind, and we were there for hours. That little boy and his dad who were there to take a tour, I think as teachers, we kind of allowed that boy to be our distraction. He was scared. So we're like, we're going to distract him from this craziness. There are people bleeding and shot on the floor and we're trying to take his attention away from that while his dad, who was paramedic, I want to say, was helping assist. So we're talking to him about Harry Potter. Our teacher hats went on immediately, which I think was really a blessing for us because it helped distract us from the scariness of what was happening. We were there for hours until the FBI came and they escorted us through the airport tarmac. They loaded us into vans and they took us to a private airport hangar where celebrities and like wealthy people fly in on their private jets. So us and a bunch of other people who had been found or hiding in other places all came together in there. And that's when the TVs were on. And so we were watching the news reports of what was happening. While there wasn't much information at that time, we were starting to understand the vastness of what had happened. And we were just all very in shock trying to process it all. The FBI finally let us go at like 2.30 in the morning. They're like, okay, there's no more danger, no more threat. You're just going to go ahead and walk out this building. If you walk this way, you're going to go to a mall. If you walk this way, you're going to go back to the hotels. It was unreal. Them opening the doors, these FBI agents and their bulletproof vests and their guns. And they're like, okay, well, the threat is gone. Go ahead. It's an odd experience, and I'm grateful for all that they did do to protect us and keep us safe. But yeah, there are some holes in the system maybe that we could work on. Even hand me a card of like, here, contact this helpline. We weren't staying on the strip. We were in an Airbnb farther away. And so we're like, well, how are we going to get home? I happen to know someone who lived in the area. 
So she left her kids in the middle of the night and she came and picked us up from like the empty parking lot of the mall that we had to walk out to. She took us to our Airbnb. We basically just got there, packed up our things and drove home because we were just like, we have to get out of here. We got to get home. I need to get home to my babies, hug them and see our husbands. That's that day. I'm a little bit surprised that I've shared so much about it, but as you had mentioned before, there's a bit of a therapeutic component to speaking about it. It was incredible to watch strangers helping strangers. There was no hesitation from so many people to pick people up off the ground. When I've looked back through media, people throwing themselves on top of other people to save them and protect them and come to their aid when they're bleeding on the ground. We think about how terrible society is with all of these shootings and all of this awfulness that happens, but there is so much goodness that does still exist. As awful as it is to experience something like this, you do see the kindness that comes from the people around you. People do care about other people and they want to help. In a way, as a survivor, you have to lean on those moments and those memories to get through it. When we got home, our husbands were all standing outside the garage waiting for us. I remember us just getting out of the car and falling into their arms and them just standing silently. Some of our neighbors who were closer to us or knew that we were at this festival came out of their homes and checked on us, which I thought was really sweet. Our husbands cooked us our favorite comfort meal. I hugged my kids and we just kind of sat and they allowed us to share what we wanted to share. I think something that gets missed a lot is that family members might not have been there at that moment in that same situation. They're also victims because now their loved ones have been directly affected. And so they're processing it as victims as well. While we were processing it, they were also processing it in their way. They had a lot of questions, and I know that they were trying to be very sensitive to us, not wanting to push us, but like we are talking now in this very therapeutic way, I think having those conversations with them was good for all of us. The days after were really hard, trying to process it all, having it all replay in your head over and over and trying to understand what we went through, why we went through it, what could have happened if we didn't make certain choices. Those are torturous thoughts to go through. The thought of leaving my family, just not wanting to separate myself from my kids because I was so afraid, not wanting them to go out into the world because I was afraid of what could happen to them. I had tons of love and support from my family. We had a couple of other friends in our friend group. They all came over and parents flew in from Chicago. We all spent time together as this family, really, which was therapeutic. My husband will say that over and over again, he heard me say, I don't want to be around people. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. I like really pushed myself and put myself out there to be with my friends because they needed that from me, not so much what I needed from them. So that was interesting and might have delayed my own process of healing. Sorry, I'm like getting a little emotional. It's just an interesting thing to think about from my perspective. It's like I still sacrificed myself for others instead of taking care of myself. I didn't really think about that before. 
I've just been trying to learn more about myself and learning that I need to set better boundaries because I will sacrifice myself for everybody else around me because I want to help people. And I think it did delay my process of healing. Or maybe that was a coping skill for myself to just focus on others. This happened in October and we moved to Texas at the very end of December. Trent had to move for a job. It was still a big thing for us. In California, there were so many people who went to the festival in California. So you were still with people who were still very aware of it and knew it and were just part of it. That was helpful because I didn't feel forgotten. I think that's something that is an interesting part of media is when media stops talking about it, the world keeps going and you're just like, wait a minute, I suffered this big thing and I went through this big thing and everybody's already moving on and I'm not moving on yet. How can the world be moving on from such a devastating thing? Moving to Texas, even though it was national news, people weren't as connected to it because it wasn't in their state or like close to home or where like a lot of their people were. Some people didn't really know about it. They didn't think about it. It was weird to like be in a place that didn't have that connection to it. I felt very alone. Even though my husband knew about it, I could talk to him. I saw my friends I could talk to. I needed them. So it was really hard. We're still very close. We still talk regularly and try to get together as often as possible. We will forever be bonded by the tragedy, but more importantly, by our friendship, which was strengthened from the tragedy. Danny and I have matching tattoos of little feathers with three little birds because she always would say, I feel like we were carried out of there. And that's just a constant reminder of how lucky we were to have each other in that moment and through all of that. Working in a new school in Texas where you can open carry, that's a whole different thing. They had an active shooter training. They wanted to show this video of an active shooter situation. And they started to talk about what we were going to see, how this is going to tie into the training and how we're going to respond to it. I had to leave. Even the thought of hearing gunshots and needing to know how to protect ourselves from an active shooter in the school. That was mind-blowing. I just went through this as an adult, and I'm struggling. We should not have to think about this for kids in schools. It was very, very difficult, and it's gotten easier over time, but every time this training comes up or we do the drills during the school year, every time they announce that's coming, and sometimes they're all unannounced and so that you don't know it's coming, it's very, very triggering. And I am finding myself having to dig deep to pull out those coping skills that I was having to use right after the event. In a sense, it's like reliving it over and over again. What are the conversations like that you do have with your children? And how do you think your experiences have affected that? My oldest two, who are 12 and 9, they do know what happened. I think as they've gotten older, I've shared more with them or they've heard conversations between my husband and I or some of my other family members. Sometimes when I meet new people that I start to get close with, that comes up in conversation somehow. So they'll hear me talking about it. I don't ever want to hide it from them because this is like so sick to even say, but the reality of them being a victim of a mass shooting is very real. 
So I feel like they need to know that, which is so sad to even have to say, but they need to know how to protect themselves. They need to know how to keep themselves calm. So I try to use it in a way of this is how mom was able to protect herself, how her friends were able to stick together, how we were able to come out of it the other side. These are the things that you could do too, if this were to happen. Listen to your teacher, because if this happens, you need to listen to them. It could be life or death. And I think that's really important. Which is putting so much responsibility on the teacher too, though, because again, they're just a human in a traumatic event and God forbid, they're not overwhelmed and overcome by the trauma. I think that that's an important thing to think about is we as teachers are human too. And so we might freeze, not know what to do. And so that are some of the conversations I have with my boys. Yeah, you need to listen to your teacher, but you also need to know what to do if you're not with a teacher or if you're with an adult who is having a hard time themselves. So we talk about the different things that they could do. And they come home on the days that they have drills, especially the intruder drills. They will talk about how they were feeling or what they did, or sometimes they'll have plans that they've come up with, like, if that doesn't work, what are we going to do? Or my teacher told me to grab some books and we could start throwing books at the intruder. And so we talk about those different things. I think that it's really important for parents to not shut down conversations with their kids if they come up. We should not be saying to them like, oh, well, that's never going to happen to you. Or you just need to hide. We can't be having those conversations anymore. They're happening too often. And sometimes hiding isn't going to work or you're not going to have a place to hide. What are you going to do? Also, then taking the time to really process the emotions that they're feeling when they're talking about how do you think you would feel in that moment? Developing the coping skills with them is really important. I don't let my kids watch the news. They don't have social media or anything like that. But when situations come up that I feel like is a really good teachable moment, often we hear about big things that happen and we have to process that information as well. Even though we weren't directly affected by it, we still have to process the information. And sometimes that stirs up fear of going certain places. Maybe you haven't been in a mass shooting. Maybe now you're hearing all of it. You're afraid to go to concerts or you're afraid to go into a school building or you're afraid to go to a festival. We have to be able to teach these kids how to cope with that and how to process the information in a healthy way and still be able to function. I think that also in that sharing, not only are we giving them tools and resources for survival, but we're also hopefully bringing enough awareness because this has to change. Which I talk to my kids about all the time. Some kids that I work with who I think this is a type of kid, if we don't get in here right now and help, this is somebody who could act on this in a very big way and hurt a lot of people. As a trained person, I see warning signs and then I go in and try to help. We need to provide them with more support, give them these resources, talk to the families. I'm trying to teach my own children, if you see something, you should say something. If you feel uneasy, if this person says something to you, if you have any indication that they could or would, you need to say something. We have stories now of kids bringing weapons to school. They told their friends about it and nobody said anything. 
or they had expressed some thoughts of hurting someone and then weeks later it's happened. We as teachers have been told we cannot hold that information. It's not our place to judge whether it's true or not, or they could or they couldn't. If we hear something, we must say something. The children must also learn to do the same thing. In terms of the judicial system, laws need to be created, more gun control, and also holding other people accountable who might be participating in supplying weapons, whether it be legally or illegally, having just more of checks and balances. I think gun control and mental health is something we really have to look at in this country. I really struggle with feeling safe. I find that it's really hard for me to participate in life without constantly planning for an escape route. And that's exhausting to like walk into a store. The first thing I do isn't whip out my shopping list and be like, okay, where am I gonna go first in the store? It's like, no, let's assess this environment. Where are my exits? How would I get out or where would I hide? If I have my kids with me, what will I say to them? What will we do? I don't find myself wanting to go to things that I used to want to go to, like music festivals or concerts. And that's really sad. I feel very robbed of that and it's something that I'm still continuing to try to overcome. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what I would need to do to survive a crisis like that. As somebody who suffers from anxiety and depression, there have been intrusive thoughts that I've had to deal with, process through, and cope with my entire life. It's just like really put it on such a grander scale, not involving what I might do to myself in a very depressive state, but now I have to also have these thoughts of what will happen when somebody else tries to do something to me. That's a hard thing to process because I can control myself and my choices, but you just can't guarantee anybody else. It's hard to trust and hard to feel safe. I have so much anxiety that I really try to keep within myself and not show to my children, but they do see it sometimes because it's very hard to hide it sometimes, especially in social situations. They recognize that and they have some anxiety and fears themselves. And I feel bad about that. It's been so glorified, that's the perfect word for it. Being part of something that now is going to be this big story in American history and just the way that it was being talked about. It wasn't serving me, it wasn't helping me heal. So I really had to like be okay with or try to be okay with having the information that we have and not needing to find any more. How am I going to move on from this with the information that I have, even though I feel like I don't have all the information? That is really what pushed me into seeking some professional therapy for it. My other girlfriends had already done that and I was very resistant to it. My personality of being very private, it's very difficult for me to ask for help. I don't want to inconvenience other people. So I'm always trying to do things for myself or offer help to others. But my family really encouraged me to just go talk it out, see how this can help. I shared with the therapist how the media kept just giving me the same information. 
it's not answering my questions. It's not giving me what I need. It's just regurgitating the same information over and over again. It's not helping me. It's not doing anything for me. And it's glorifying this whole terrible thing. And so she helped me write my own ending to this story. It was through that. Like, I'm never going to get the information that I want from the media. There's never going to be the answer you need. So you're going to have to answer those questions yourself. I think with media, it's so hard because they have a job to do. They need to spread information. But I would love to say, be mindful of the victims and just understand how the information you share without all the information can be very confusing or very traumatizing or triggering. We as victims are seeking information and the media shares something. You kind of hang on to that because you think, okay, that's going to answer my question or that's going to help heal me later. It's like, oh, well, new information has been shared and that wasn't right. And this is right. I wish we could change the way media does things and doesn't glorify things or fantasize some of it. Let's just keep it to the facts. I feel bad for people who have been involved in mass shootings around the world who there's no coverage of it at all. We need to know how often it's happening to really see how bad it is. People have no idea. It is happening almost every day. We need to know the important facts and what steps need to be taken to change it. We have to know the information for proactive change, but also for reactive. I would love to see more of that. You did mention therapy being a great tool and writing as an outlet. What other resources or tools have you tapped into to try to revive your feeling of security and safety? There are times when I feel like I haven't done a very good job cultivating tools to navigate. I think that in the very beginning, there are a lot of times I found myself trying to push it down. That didn't help. I joined survivor group forums on Facebook. At first, it was really good to connect with people who had been there. But after a while, I realized that there were some people who weren't coping with it and putting it out on these forums that it wasn't allowing me to move forward. It was a very weird feeling because you're part of this group. You've all gone through something, but I'm not finding it helpful anymore. And I feel bad for that. So I just would encourage people to be cautious when you feel like your healing process is coming to a point where that no longer serves you. It's okay. I think bottom line is leaning on your friends and family, allowing them to support you, seeking professional help through therapy, and allowing yourself to have the feelings is really important. Talking about it, writing your own story if you need to, to give yourself some answers is important. Educating yourself and involving yourself in what needs to change. For me, it's being active in groups that are for more gun control. I did rely on seeking out stories or podcasts of people who had been through trauma. I felt like, okay, I can connect to this story and this is going to help heal me because I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. To be able to listen to a podcast and hear someone else's story and find connection to it was really important for me when I moved away. Even to this day, getting further and further from it, 
but still processing it and having it be part of my story now is still so important to find those connections to help continue to heal. You have really inspired me through your whole journey, even though our situations were very different. A tragedy is a tragedy, and I've just found strength in your story and how you've propelled yourself and moved forward and are working towards change. When you messaged me and asked me, like, well, she has influenced me in such a way, I would hope that I could do the same for someone else. I think in my career and who I am as a person, I'm always looking for ways to help others through connection. And by hearing other people's stories, it creates a connection and that connection is so healing. And so I want to be able to do that for other people because the healing process really never ends. You're always going to be healing from it. It's always going to be a wound that's in there. We are always working. We are always healing and growing. That doesn't mean that you're broken. That is totally normal. There is beauty in the healing process and nobody should be afraid of that. If there is no one right way to heal, there is no timeline to it. Don't put pressure on yourself. Allow yourself to be affected and just be mindful that your process isn't about anybody else but yourself. It was very hard for me to feel like I could heal in my own way or outwardly because I didn't want anybody to think they couldn't come to me or I wasn't available to them. That delayed my healing process and made it a little bit more difficult. But even looking back and reflecting on that, that is my healing journey and that's okay too. I just feel like it's so individualized and unique to whatever your process is and how you go through it. I would give the advice again is just be very careful of how you engage in support groups and forums. It's important to check in with yourself and make sure that something that might have been healing at one point is still healing. Yeah. And to allow others to be strong for you. You don't always have to be strong for yourself. Your family and your friends and your community are specifically for these hard moments. Allow them to be your strength and lean on them. It doesn't make you any less. By allowing others to help you heal is healing in and of itself. I just really appreciate you being willing to share. It was very healing. I really appreciate it. I think, sadly, with the amount of mass shootings that are happening, there are more and more people whose story is similar to mine. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Route 91 Harvest Festival was a country music festival that began in 2014. The event was attended by approximately 22,000 people, although no festival has been held since 2017, the year the mass shooting took place. On October 1st, 2017, the last day of the festival, a shooter terrorized a city over a 15-minute period. More than 1,000 shots were fired into the crowd, killing 60 people and injuring over 800 more. The perpetrator committed the acts from a window on the 32nd floor of the adjacent Mandalay Bay Hotel, then shot himself. To date, it is the largest mass murder executed by an individual in American history, although the number of shootings rises every single day. 
In fact, in the first five days of July 2023 alone, American citizens have been victims to 26 mass shootings. For more statistics and resources regarding mass shootings, please listen to What Came Next, Episode 10. Visit the episode notes or visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. The days start going by. TV, news, radio, all the local channels blowing my phone up. I started doing the thing that I thought you were supposed to do, which is killers on the loose. We got to keep the word out there until they find this person that killed my dad. For about five days straight, it was the top news story on all the channels. The first interview he did, the thought just didn't cross our minds that they would have any other intention other than sympathy and empathy and getting that story out. He basically poured his heart out to someone for an hour and they didn't use any of the information that he told them. It was just heartbreaking to realize that they want the story. That was really eye-opening. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.